This is a podcast from SPH Radio. Welcome to this podcast has fur and other coverings, where we want to talk about those furry, scaly and feathered creatures we love so much. In episode two, we're talking to a vet, someone very important to our fur babies' lives, especially since they can't tell us what's wrong and need highly honed CSI type skills, which a lot of us might not have. For me, it's always, okay, tyrant, you're mewing. Let's give you more food. Dr. Kathy Chan started The Animal Doctors with Dr. Chon Su Lin. They specialize in small mammal treatment. The Animal Doctors was established in 2008. Full disclosure, The Animal Doctors is the clinic where I take Digger and Tyrant to, and she's going to help us debunk some misconceptions that people have about vets. First up though, we asked her about the COVID-19 situation and how it affected veterinary practices in Singapore. In the beginning, when it sort of unfolded, of course, very much was unknown, right? It came out in the angle that it could involve wild animals or the consumption of animal meat, wildlife, the involvement of wet markets and things like that. When something like that comes out, the first worry you always have is looking back in history and thinking about all the other viruses that had been originating from animals and the zoonosis, the human health safety. You know, what is the impact going to be? Because it's something so unknown, even you know, experts in the veterinary industry had no clue. Even though the coronavirus is something that vets have dealt with for years in individual animal species, especially the cat, in the domestic world, um, oh. I'm not so sure about the wildlife world, but in the cat world, for the last 30, 40 years, it's been one of the causes of one of the most devastating diseases in, in the cat world, without a cure until now. So, of course, you know, knowing that it's a coronavirus and being a vet, knowing that the coronavirus is famous for mutating in various species and forming their own super viral abilities. Of course, when that came out, in fact, the veterinary world has very, very close relationship with the coronavirus. Many veterinarians had been studying the disease. Niels Peterson is one of the biggest ones in the US that's been studying it and he eventually is coming close to finding the cure for it. In cats, in FIP, of course, you know, as a vet, you always think, oh, is it linked? Do we have anything to worry about? Is it going to be that devastating, you know? And then, of course, it it hits quite close to home on a scale that nobody was prepared for. Mm. Our government was very quick to react in terms of what businesses need to do and all vet clinics are considered businesses. So by the time we put aside all the other things, we had to make sure that our staff was safe. We had to follow everything just to make sure that everybody would be safe. I mean, the veterinary consultation is a point where close human-to-human contact takes place. We spend 15 minutes to half an hour with the owner, chatting to them, talking to them, examining the animal, discussing, you know. So it's a real sort of face-to-face thing. Operationally, and, though, how have yeah. you had to deal with Because uh, I went to your, your clinic yeah. and I saw Dr. Yeah. Chan. Yeah. Couldn't talk to her, right? Except for the yeah. phone. Yeah. And then, which is so unusual because I've been going to your clinic for years and it's always, like you say, yeah. a very intimate chat. And we're talking yeah. about a valued family member. That's yeah. challenging to overcome. It's, it's tough. We adopted the contactless consult quite early on in the outbreak. It wasn't made mandatory. AVS and SVA came up with guidelines. AVS came up with regulations, things we needed to do, things we could see, things we couldn't see. And everyone was very cooperative and followed with that. But the contactless consult was an individual clinic decision whether or not 
they wanted to take that on. Uh, so this is where we have the animals dropped off and we don't actually come face-to-face the owner. This started very early on in the US and Australia to manage and, and clinics did it on their own at that point because they wanted to protect the staff. So we had to switch to a, an angle where we would put staff safety at, at the top. Of course. Uh, we often have very dense team because it doesn't take just one vet to see. It's not like the GP, but in the vet, if the animal needs to be restrained, if you need to have blood taken, you do need at least two or three members of the team. Mm. So for the team to run smoothly, you need to have a certain critical number to work. And because in general, that density would be higher in a vet clinic, we had to take action to protect. And the staff needed to know that they were safe so that they would feel comfortable going to work. Everyone wore masks. You know, we took temperatures. Internally, we had to do all that still. Everyone keeps a mask on at all times, even from the start of this. And then also social distancing within the clinic. At lunch, you sit far away from each other and all that sort of thing. But the contactless consult is tough. We understand that you will lose that intimacy, the, the bonding that you have with the client. It has been difficult. The, the chances for misunderstanding is very, very high because mm. you don't get your body language cues. You don't get your, you know, your understanding. Like if I ask an owner a question and they give me an answer, I can tell if they're lying. <laughs> like if I say, did your, did your pet eat this? No. no. <laughs> and, and I think just with years of talking to clients, I may not say that, hey, I know you're lying, but I can tell. And I just keep quiet. I'm like, okay. But in my mind, I'm saying, you know, I know that they... I don't need to convert. I just need to know. So that visual cue is very important for me because on the phone, I can't get that. And the owners can't tell. So we've had misunderstandings. Owners who think, you know, hey, you didn't even see my animal. It's hard. And that trust then is really amplified because if you say, you know, you when you take my animal to bed, you didn't do this, you didn't do that. That trust needs to be there. So we certainly have had cases, and, and that's understandable. It's just the time. Everyone is stressed. So it's not been easy. You do get the angry clients. You get people who don't want to comply. In general, everyone's been very resilient in the vet industry. They've dealt with it. What it comes down to is the animal. And, you know, if the animal is in desperate need for, for medical care, of course, you know, that's the first priority. What's the biggest concern? I mean, I sit on the SVA as vice president, and when it came out, we saw the immediate need. AVS said, you know, you guys, you know, you're the representation of the profession. You need to say something. And we did. We had to. Because even within very educated professionals, the vets, they did have different opinions too. And, and we had to listen to everyone and then put it together and say, okay, this is the stand. So this but, sounds yeah. like a good place to talk about you as a vet. What about yeah. being a vet? Do you despise the most? Might it be that sort of administrative thing, um, running the business aspect? <laughs> I think when you speak to many vets, and, and you will hear of it as being a calling, and it is, because let's say with vet work, you do the work that you love, but maybe a lot of the other parts of it you don't really like, and it's usually the non-related parts to vet that you, you don't mind. Is it the uh, talking to people, maybe? <laughs> It's hard because uh, you often have to make that very extra effort to convince. It's different in different countries, in different industries. In the US, in Australia, I mean, that's happened too, but they're a more an older uh, domestic animal owning industry. Mm. So they've had pets for longer. There is still that love hate, there's a respect thing going on. And so when, when I worked in Australia, you may say something and the owner would take it and believe it, there's that trust. And if the owner did not like me, did not want to listen to me, they would not have come in the first place. So it was it was quite clear cut. This is just generalizing. There's always these good ones and bad ones. In Singapore, I do find that you do have to explain a little bit more. 
you have to justify a lot of what you want to do. Vets have not the best reputation in Singapore. We're often seen as being money grabbing, very mercenary. Ah, yeah, yeah, very mercenary. Okay. Oh doing, doing things for the sake of money. I can see the point of view because vet medical care is high. It's not something that is subsidized. In fact, we are in a unique situation where we have to maintain a clinic that stocks everything that a hospital, a human hospital would offer. So a human GP clinic and a GP vet clinic is very different. You know, we need to have x-rays, we need to have ultrasounds, all the ologists in one, cardiologists, mm. urologists, everything in one. Our pharmacy shelves is not just two or three antibiotics. We have to have everything. And if we don't have everything, we'll be like, why don't you have everything? The expectations is we are to provide the one-stop shop and a quick solution. And to do that at a very cheap price. That's not easy to do. And I, I don't know any professional industry that is expected to do that. I can't think of any. Uh, an industry that has to provide the entire range of services with almost the full amount of equipment, at, and excluding things like advanced imaging, CT, MRI. A full pharmacy, full services, be everything from pediatrician to medicine to surgery to everything, to preventive health to everything, and do it for a cheaper price. It's not possible because it's economically not possible. If I needed a drug and I needed to stock it, the drug will have to come from various suppliers. There's no one-stop vet wholesaler like they have in Australia and the US. Oh. We get it from very many different distributors, different companies that would help us and bring this stuff in. They are third parties, so they would have one round of price increase from their suppliers. comes to us. Can't stock like the human hospitals, right? We, we will stock in... A certain amount, we can't stock it in very large amounts. So there goes your wholesale discount, right? Well, discount. There's, no, there's none. Yeah. <laughs> none. So luckily, we do have that avenue of getting some things from human drug suppliers. And they do give us wholesale discounts and things like that. So there are some, but we can't stock because, of course, expiry dates. By the time the drug comes down the veterinary supply chain, an expiry date may be 10 months, one year, which means we can't stock very much of it. Which means if we are to stock it, we would have to try and cover some sort of cost. So the price goes up. And there's, there's absolutely no subsidy, which I understand. So the price generally has to fall on the client. It has to be passed on to the pet. This COVID thing has not helped and internationally vet cost is going to go up. It's going mm. to happen. And it's not going to be pretty because people already complain about vet cost as a big issue. But unfortunately, it will go up. At the moment, no clinics are raising their prices, of course. But it's more just down the track because the current batch we have of drugs was made a year or two ago. So next year, the year after the drugs that we receive, the price is going to go up. And that is going to be tough in the coming years. And mm. that's one of the things I foresee as going to be a very big problem. Sounds um, like running your own vet it, clinic might the... be or running your own business might be the worst part of being a vet. Yeah, it's, it's tough. I have never been a business person. It's not my thing. I don't see things like that. And, and for a lot of vets, that's us. That's why we became vets, because we never see things in a... Mm. You know, if, if we had a business mind and if we wanted to make money, we would not have become vets. Yeah. Because the vet industry is the last Least place money profiteering. That, yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, unfortunately, the profit margins aren't good. So, I, I can understand people think of it as mercenary because what they pay out. I guess they don't see what's going on in the background. Mm. I guess. 
what goes into making up that price. So the vet world is the only world where you would see some a veterinarian go, and not just me, but I know other vet practice managers who do that go, right, this tablet, the cost of it, for example, is $5, and my, my dog really needs it. Okay, I'm not going to make the margin. I'll just put a 10% on it. This is the only industry where we do that to go, oh, okay, well, this animal's going to need it, right? And, and this all happens behind the scenes, right? Yeah. Because compared to, let's say, a generic drug that might cost 10 cents, so everyone has their own market, right? You might mark it up 50%, 100%, whatever. But this is the only industry where you will go, oh, no, the cost is $10 a tablet. All right, I think I'll just, instead of making my usual markup, I'll just put, you know, a dollar mm. on it just because this animal really needs it. And this is the only business model that you would see do this. And it's, it will fail. It's one of the worst, uh, Bad business person you are, Dr. Yeah, it's Chan. terrible. <laughs> They'll be like, huh? <laughs> so, and then, you know, you, you do have to pay for the labels, for the thing, and all the other hidden costs that goes around to it. The cost of it sitting on the, on the shelf, waiting to be used, then it expires, then we throw away a batch. We never get that money back. So yeah. all these things have to be in it. And to be honest, I learned this on the job. I never knew, you know, it's not something that anyone teaches you. People go to business school to become good business people. We went to vet school. To be good vets. Yeah. Yeah, we went to vet good vets. Why then? Why not just work for a clinic instead of opening one up for yourself? Yeah, I don't know why people question that decision, I guess. There was some... Um, I think when you first graduate from vet school, there's a little bit of idealism there also. Like, you know, like, you mm. know, oh, you know, you want to do it this way. You want to do things this way. You want to, this is what you want to offer. Vet salaries are not high. So often you would think, okay, if I run a successful clinic, then potentially I could earn a bit more money. That mm. So even though I say we're not mercenary, but we do have to earn a living. Of course. It, it's hard. So I, we will go back to how people in Singapore do feel that vets are... I know that's the reputation. And that's hard to, to fight. I've had a lady throw money in my face. Whoa. Uh, you know, because she felt that I did not deserve the money because her animal came in, which we needed in an emergency situation, needed resuscitation. We, we tried and unfortunately, you know, we couldn't resuscitate the animal. But we did use a whole gamut of things to resuscitate the animal. We did our best, you know, and, and because it's done at the back, the owners couldn't see. I, I can understand why she thinks we did nothing. And so in her mind, it's, you know, you, you're charging me $40. And again, this is the vet world where you probably use $150 worth of stuff to resuscitate this animal. You're getting $40. Mm. $40 and my animal's dead. You did nothing. Then, yeah, money, throw my <laughs> uh, I, I mean, there's nothing you can really do, right? And, and that's all through the world suffered from this sort of interactions and stuff like, you know, here, take this money, you know, you're probably at the back having a party or something like that. Things like that, people say. And, and the thing is, we, we understand that grief is involved, right? So that's why as a professional, we always just let that go because the person's going through grief. There is no real point getting into it. Some vets are okay with it. Others, you know, the, the vet industry has the highest attrition rate, the highest oh, professional suicide rate. Wow. It's to do with all these things. When people say, oh, would you like dealing with vet owners? Yeah, of course, there are the owners that are very nice, owners that are very bad, and the in-between, that's, that's life. But they play a big role in their interactions with their vets. And the, the, the industry has far surpassed all other professions in terms of attrition rates, of suicide rates. And they, they estimate, they can estimate how many vets will commit suicide every day, every year. My personal school year, we had 110 students from my year, from uni, 
and we've lost three to suicide already. Some very early on in their careers, some later on. We, we've all known someone in the profession who has committed suicide. It's a, a job that has very high compassion fatigue. You need to deal with a lot of many other things. You've got to deal with life. You know, it's not an easy job. Whenever you have students coming in, watching, observing practice, wanting to be vets, <laughs> you can hear them, all the vets going, you know, you shouldn't be doing this, you know. It, everyone came to it because of a calling. If you didn't last, then you would have left the industry quite early on already. What so, other misconceptions I, I, that, do people have about vets? Might these students, when they come in, actually change their minds up to all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, right? And then they see what you deal with and go, oh man, I'm out. We, we had a young man who was going to start university. And he came to get some work experience and to work for us for a bit. And, and that's very that's very good. I always tell whoever wants to be a, you work in a vet clinic first. Because you're young, you have the right to make your choices here now. Go and work in the industry you want to work in and see whether it's something you can see yourself doing. So he was he was very good. He came in, he adapted really well and, and, and on his I think on his fourth or his fifth day, he was he was so funny. He said um he he sort of mumbled under his breath to one of the other senior partners and he was like you know I I really thought you guys play with puppies all day long. Where are the puppies? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> We do not say there's no words. We want to encourage this young man, but you cannot. And then he's come to that realization himself, you know. And he grew up for his whole life wanting to be a vet, and he really said it out. I thought you guys, you know, have puppies or where are the puppies? Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, so he, do you he think he'll he, continue? He, he, he did it right. In, no, he, he's not going to. Oh dear! Because and of the that, no that, puppies. That, that's the thing. <laughs> But that's the thing, the, the image, and that's a good image. I think it's an image that people like to see that. It's a nice fluffy image. But yes, we do have the puppies. We do play with them and we all love those moments. But they're not everything about the job. We deal with terminally ill. We deal with disease. We deal with infectious disease. We deal with trauma. We deal with animal abuse. We deal with, with the side of humans that you never want to see. And sometimes we have to deal with that. We have to deal with people who tie rubber bands around their dog's tails. It, is, it truly isn't just fluffy puppies that we play with all day long. And um, How much of the job has changed for you? I initially wanted to be a wildlife vet. That was my initial ambition. Uh, I knew quite early on when I was taking my PSLE, I, I wanted to be a vet. Because I was very much into the arts. I did theatre, speech and drama... I love the English language, so I was very geared towards that. But when I decided, I you know in those days you have to choose right quite early on what stream you go to and all mm. those things. So secondary school, you had to already know, which is geared towards the science stream and go towards that side. So already you had to switch gears and move towards this tougher, didn't come as second nature and work towards that. So I wanted to be a wildlife vet because my mom had taken me to South Africa and I was inspired there. And just the concept of, you know, animal conservation, you know, Jane Goodall, that sort of thing. My mom insisted that I worked in a vet clinic because vet school would be quite costly. And so being a single mom, you know, she had to make quite a bit of sacrifices and, and save up the money and to help me go through vet school if I wanted to still do it. Her condition was that if I had worked in a clinic for a year and I still wanted to be a vet, then she would. I think she was just buying time to save money. I don't know. <laughs> so, so which is good, good thing. So I was accepted into law school in the US. Oh. Um, so I had to either decide to do that 
or find a job in a vet clinic and prove that I wanted to be a vet. So I gave up the offer. Uh, the <gasps> US, uh, Asian parents and, all dying now, Dr. Chan. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I mean, my, my, mom, my mom was beside herself. She was so angry. Uh, so it, it was a big, it was a big fight, and and also because you know, like I said, she's a single mom, so it meant that five years of vet school is five years away from her at the age of eighteen years old. Like I didn't know what what it was then, but I do now. But mm. um, a bit drama lah. Then uh, <laughs> we settled on me working, so we gave up that offer, and I went to work in a vet clinic as a nurse. So in those days, there weren't very many vet clinics around, fifteen to twenty clinics only. Uh, so of course, you know, you finding a job is not easy. No experience, nothing. You know, they have to train you from scratch. So you do what everyone does. You take the very low pay to no pay, and you just do the grunt work. And after that, I made lots of good friends. And then after a year, a year and a half for the next enrollment, my mom said, "Okay, since I did it and I still want to do it, she needed me to have a degree and not, you know, so called do nothing." She sent me off to to vet school. So right about vet school, um, about second or third year, you realize that okay, the people in vet school are the cream of the crop of that country. You go in an elite, has、mm. got better than you. You know they're all really clever people.、Uh, some of them are two or three years younger. They've graduated from high school faster than their peers. You know, it's a very dynamic thing. Vet school. You you learn so much. So so that during that time, so the school obviously exposes you to all sorts of aspects of where you have to learn about different animals, different industries, the farming industry, agriculture industry, the abattoirs, the animal control industry, the medicine, the domestic. So I think from there, people would then sort of have their interest, what speaks to them, and then you you go towards that direction. So、mm. then started being interested in in the medicine, and then it slowly just evolved into to the medicine. I I did want to still do the wildlife thing, but you you enter the world where very competitive feel. So the wildlife feel is very competitive. Only people with lots of prior experience who had already been in the industry prior to going to vet schools. I knew that you know even though it's what I love to do, I I was likely not able to get there. So, Now it's as so, if yeah, you've、I、gone、guess. in the other direction because you are a small animal expert. Yeah, but I think I think in general, if you talk to most vets, I mean, of course, yeah, you have specialists in the field for sure.、Uh, but there are many vets out there that just like everything. They like veterinary science. They just like the the challenge, the knowledge, the spirit of veterinary science. Cat with diarrhea, a dog with diarrhea, a frog with diarrhea, a bird with diarrhea. You're just challenged by this, you know, this thing. Give me something. I'll everything about that case that you want to solve and you want to help and you want to do good. Do you have、so、a favorite I, I, animal, Doctor Chan? In terms of my own personal favorite animal, there's two. There's the alpaca and the capybara. But in in that's so unusual. Yeah, no, I love those two animals. I think they're my spirit animals. Those are my favorites. But I mean, in terms of treat treating, I I think I'm one of those that. I like the challenge. Give me the the problem, and I want to try to fix it. And to treat, I don't have a special animal to treat that I prefer more than the other. No, I, I of course there is the well animal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. The healthy animal. I wish, that, I wish we were filled with that, you know, all the time. Okay, let's get some questions though, because we're cheapo, right? So as soon as I ask people, <laughs> I'm talking to a vet. What sort of things、yeah. would you like to ask? And I imagine that's what it's like as soon as you meet somebody. And they find out、yeah. you're a vet. It immediately becomes a consult. So here's some questions that I pulled、yeah. from the office. 
yeah. from <laughs> my colleagues. First question, yeah. why does my dog eat poop? <laughs> we get that uh, <clears throat> a lot, actually. There, there are a few things that contribute to that. The first thing, and this is thing, is to make sure that the dog doesn't have any underlying medical condition. Things like parasites. You have to make sure that the dog is otherwise well. There are some very unique hormonal conditions that can make a dog eat excessively and therefore they will eat their poo. It's not normal, but it can, I guess, be a combination of medical and or behavioral components to it. There's no simple answer to that question, but it can be multifactorial and you do need to figure out which it is. Staying on that theme, what's with the madness my cat does after going to the toilet? Cats, <laughs> cats do that, don't they? My cat does that too. It's like a celebration. It's out, yeah. For my cat, I see it as a celebration. She makes a very big show of it. It's a very big event in her life. <laughs> so she makes a very big show out of it, and then she buries it, and then she's super happy, and then she spins around and she runs around and she tells everybody that she's done it. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's a behavioral thing. I mean, she obviously finds it. It's the best part of a day, I guess. Next question. How important is it to take my pet, be it a bird or a small animal, for example, to an appropriate vet? Well, okay, for, for the birds, I would say because birds do require a whole different set of the way the medications are administered, for example. A clinic that doesn't do birds very frequently may not actually have the particular formulations in stock. For birds... They, they have a whole different thing going on. And they have different diseases. They have different approach, approach as well. I would say that if I had a bird, yeah, I mean, I would, I would want to, to take it to someone who, you know, as you, said, as you know from vet school, we learn everything, right? And there is no one that is an expert in everything. It's about like going to the GP. If, if I had to deal with a bird that was in an emergency, I would know what to do. But if it got a bit more complicated, I would probably say, you know, I think maybe you let's go to someone else. Okay. Should I brush my pet's teeth, dog or cat? Uh, yes. <laughs> so, oh. yes dental, 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 what if they hate health? it and you can't and they have these fangs? <laughs> so dental care, it's been quite the focus in the past 10, 15 years, you know, dental disease. When you do veterinary dental work, you would see the most horrific things that could go wrong with a mouth or teeth that are not brushed. And so, you know, we strongly encourage the brushing of teeth daily but i know it's not it's not easy i mean especially cats and you're not gonna i can't even do it to my cat i would love to do it but i can't and and so there are ways to to, to sort of work work around that you know well, there are very good resources there's one called the what we call a vohc the veterinary oral health council that's an international body that lists down the things you can do the treats that have been tested uh water additives gels food, everything that has been proven to remove plaque and tartar is, is there on the website. And mm. we direct people there, do that. If you can't brush, at least do that. Well, thanks so much for your time, Dr. Chan. I'm sorry I've taken up so much of it. No, no, that's okay. It was, uh, it was good having a chat. This podcast has fur and other coverings. Is a production of SPH Radio. It's hosted and produced by Howie Lim from Money FM 89.3. You can also find us on iTunes, Google Podcast, and streaming on Google Home.